Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I'm your host, Tom Richardson, and we will be bringing you all of the latest news, insight, and interviews with leaders and subject matter experts from the world of RegTech. Um, today, we're going to be joined by Mr. Joel Lang. Joel is the Managing Director of the Risk and Compliance Division of Accurus Global. And two things have always really stood out for me about Joel. One is the uh, well, his immense breadth and depth of knowledge of the financial crime market space and the associated ecosystem of technology and data providers. Um, he's always the person I would go to with any questions about that. The other is that I've always felt that he had a really interesting personal story to tell about taking calculated risks with his career. Um, and I think it's good to share that story because it's something we can all learn from. Um, so we're going to go straight into the action now with Joel, and I ask him to talk us through his journey from when we first met in 2008 at um, Acuity. At Acuity, I had a great um, sales career uh, going. I was, you know, on Target, President's uh, yeah. Club a few times. <laughs> I say President's Club. I, I think I've had, um, uh, you know, a good couple of years over 100% of Target. And, you know, I think for those in the industry, you're working... Um, you know, in the back office, payments, compliance industry, you're on target. Uh, the way that the trajectory of, you know, the overall market was going was uh, one where uh, there was obviously going to be a lot of interest in you. And I started to get calls and I, um, I got a call uh, for what was then City Networks. Um, and it was a, a significant increase on the base. It was working in the FX space, which I think at the time you're looking at capital markets, yeah. really exciting. Uh, it, and and I moved to City Networks. Um, actually, at that time, the, the, the financial crisis happened because I do remember, you know, Cybos is always a big conference yeah. for those of us in in the in the payments industry and the compliance industry now. Um, and I remember Cybos was in Vienna that year, and I didn't go actually because my my oldest son was born around that time. Uh, so I didn't go to Cybos that year, but I remember uh, the Lehman Brothers crashed at Cybos. Uh, well, not at, at Cybos, but it happened. It coincided with the Vienna Cybos. And <laughs> I, although I wasn't there, I remember hearing the stories about how bankers were literally, you know, on day two of Cybos, getting on a plane to go back to New York, wow. to London in the middle of that crisis. Um, and then, you know, I was there throughout a year and... Really enjoyed it, made some great contacts, learned a ton about the um, back office FX and security space, confirmation matching. Um, but I, you know, I missed Acuity and I missed the, uh, actually the compliance space in relation to the, the types of meetings that I would go on. It just seems that, you know, there was more content there. Yeah. Uh, and I missed that content. And I had an opportunity to go back to Acuity and the, um, uh, the role that um, that Acuity was interested in me taking was more of a product professional services role. So there was still an element of sales initially in that, um, but it also fascinated me to be doing something different and to be back in that environment. Um, and and look, you know, there financially it may have not been the you know that wasn't the progression that that I had been on, but it was definitely something that I really believed in that I, I felt that that 
the industry was something I wanted to get back into. And it wasn't necessarily because it was overly hot at the time in, in terms of that industry and the, and the trajectory that it then went on uh, in, in years to come. Um, but I went back and I, again, really enjoyed that. Um, I moved into, uh, as a sort of professional services role, um, a sales role, um, and then I subsequently went into product and became a proper kind of product manager. Yeah. And I think product is an interesting role for people that have commercial background because you're still customer facing. You're trying to find out the needs of the customer for yeah. that particular um, that particular product line. Um, and and then you know started doing a ton of pre-sales through that and actually learning about how products are developed and really enjoyed that. Um, but I was doing a lot of pre-sales and, and really kind of in a way driving a business. And when I was then subsequently approached by Dow Jones in 2011, uh, the role that they outlined me, for me around effectively you know, driving a single product forward towards a commercial goal yeah. uh, really uh, struck with me. So, so, so t- being able to take on a project like that, is, it, it allows you to kind of treat some, take something end to end yeah, I guess I was, you know, it was, I guess, more specific. I was doing quite a few things. I mean, if you look back to Acuity at that time, I know you and I have a lot of friends, um, uh, you know, uh, great friends and, and ex-colleagues that that, um, that uh, we worked with at Acuity and still, you know, stay in touch with. Um, the, the Acuity at that time had, had, uh, had not yet been acquired by Relics. Uh, London was very much a satellite sales office, and I was probably one of the first product people in the Acuity office, and so that meant knowing all the products and working on, you know, uh, them. Um, despite I think my actual title towards the end of my career was very focused on payments, yeah. I was still, you know, the guys would take me out to compliance meetings, uh, and I do a lot of pre-sales around them. So to, for Dow Jones, it was actually to take on the sanctions portfolio. And they had built a very specific product for uh, sanctions for payments. So Dow Jones hadn't historically been in the payment space. Acuity had. Um, Dow Jones had, had provided sanctions data, but more for an anti-money laundering workflow than a payment workflow. And so in many ways for them, I was the ideal candidate because I had the combination of payments and sanctions expertise. And what they wanted was someone that could guide the product development yeah. in relation to that portfolio, but also be customer facing and really go out and help the sales guys get deals over the line and work towards a revenue number in relation to that specific product. And so that was really attractive for me because it combined things that I really enjoyed, meeting with customers, learning about what their needs were, bringing that back to the tech guys to have them build into the product, um, uh, being involved in the presentation layer around the product, driving a revenue target, um, as well as you know, interacting with internal executives and, and the like, uh, which I ended up doing more, more, more of over the <laughs> yeah. years. So. Yeah, we need to come on to that. The um, but but taking a step back, so the the uh, the the genesis of all of that was actually taking that product role again, going back to Acuity in that slightly more product yeah. focused role. Had you not done that, the opportunity to do what you subsequently did at Dow Jones wouldn't have arrived. And yeah. if you'd not joined Dow Jones at the time that you did, the crazy journey that you went on from there uh, would never have happened. And we say the crazy journey because that was a period of time when a lot was going on with Dow Jones. Maybe you can uh, 
talk to us a little bit about yeah, what happened. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> you know, look, I went to Dow Jones with plans to, um, to, to take on that sanctions portfolio and grow it from strength to strength. Uh, the management team there was fantastic that I was working for. Um, and, you know, I could have easily, definitely my five-year plan at that time was, I just want to take the sanctions portfolio forward and be part of this, you know, really world-class group of people that were, you know, really making great inroads in the market. And I, I guess just to comment on, on, on that evolution, you know, between the time that I went to Broadridge and came back to Acuity, actually Dow Jones went from being kind of, you know, uh, there or thereabouts in the space to really actually taking a, a great market share. And so I was really um, excited to join that team. Um, but, you know, like it happens at big media companies, change happens that across, you know, a macro level. And in a way you could say that the, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the CEO that was at Dow Jones, uh, just prior to my arrival, Les Hinton, uh, who apparently has written a fantastic book, which is really worth reading. Oh, really? The Dow Jones Risk Compliance yeah, yeah. Business is actually mentioned in that book, but you know. Do we I, have a name of that book? Uh, I'm not sure, I, I can look it up for you, but. Uh, what, what, what was the uh, CEO's name? Les Hinton. Les Hinton's and book, so, there you go, guys. So yeah, <laughs> check out Les Hinton's book. I've, apparently it's very good, I'm, I'm gonna go out and read it, but I've, I've heard great things about it. But obviously Les Hinton is, very well known because he was effectively let go as the CEO of Dow Jones in the wake of the News Corp hacking scandal because yeah. he previously was the CEO of News International. Uh, won't go into that, um, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the facts are that Les Hinton was the CEO of Dow Jones. Yeah. He left. There was no CEO when I arrived, and then within a couple of months, they hired Lex Fenwick. Um, who then um, uh, um, uh, had come in from Bloomberg um, and had really, you know, I guess in the first year I was at Dow Jones, did not really change anything that affected the Dow Jones risk and compliance business. Um, however, after a full year working with this fantastic team, uh, a change was made at Dow Jones where the strategy had changed to, to effectively move all of the B2B businesses together under one roof and with a goal towards bringing all of the different data sets into a single product. Yeah. Um, now, um, I won't comment on that, on that strategy per se, <laughs> in, the, in that, um, you know, obviously that could have potentially worked over time, but it didn't um, for, for many reasons. Um, but also as a result of that change, a lot of people decided to leave uh, Dow yeah. Jones and move on to you know, what is now uh, the alumni from that Dow Jones group that's really spread across yep. the industry at various reg techs and data providers and, um, you know, what a fantastic uh, achievements many of those people have, have, have brought in. Um, so uh, myself and a couple of other people were uh, did stay. Um, uh, the management team liked what we were doing and I kind of emerged from being the head of uh, the sanctions portfolio is looking after the whole Dow Jones risk compliance portfolio. <laughs> um, and to be honest, you know, over, um, uh, over uh, the initial period, it was quite difficult because we were understaffed. And, but we really enjoyed it, actually. I think secretly, you know, those that were around at the time because we really just bedded in and really worked really, really hard. Um, and, you know, by the time the new CEO came in, Will Lewis, um, we had achieved you know, tremendous growth rates amidst a time where we were underinvested in 
and we're really ready to kind of take on the business. And in, in hindsight, if you're from a finance perspective, you look at that period, you know, essentially this, they were sweating the assets right. very specifically and the growth continued and then we're able to actually build that out. So, you know, I think when I joined Dow Jones Risk Compliance in terms of that business team I was in, business slash product team, there was about, you know, 15 people that went down to two. And then wow. we, we built that back up to, by the time I left around, you know, probably 20. And I think now in the, since the 15 months since I was there, I think another, it's another 10 that are in the specific business group. And then that doesn't include the, you know, hundreds of researchers, the hundreds of salespeople that are in that business. So, um, so it's a real story of, um, you know, coming in and being really thrown into the deep end in yeah. relation to overall P&L management. Um, and and leading a, a, a business forward. Uh, a lot of scary uh, moments in terms of the amount of responsibility, but you know, the learning was, was huge. Yeah, so. well, I always think in situations like that, you know, to, to a certain extent, there's an element of right place, right time, as in if you hadn't joined when you did and these other things hadn't shaken out, then the opportunity would never have uh, presented True. itself. Yeah. But, you know, luck can provide the opportunity. It's how you handle that that dictates how that works out for you, whether that's ultimately yeah. successful or not. And um, what I kind of loved at the time is that I speak to you every couple of months and it seems like you'd taken on more and more responsibility and your your kind of role had grown and you were chalking up successes left, right and center. And I just, you know, the cards fell well, but you, you, you played an amazing hand during that period of time as mm -hmm. it seemed to me. Yeah, you know, you know and I benefited from, um, having you know really really intelligent people to work with yeah. and so and it, it absolutely was not all me um it was so, always a very nice culture i felt yeah. uh, within that risk and compliance team at dow jones um some of the people that are still there and and some of the people that have yeah. moved on i there was a lot of very decent people yeah i was always you know i, I always thought there was no um there, dow jones always attracted really intelligent people really mm. interesting multi uh, cultural, um, you know, uh, just really interesting, intelligent people, and uh, and uh, you know, I enjoyed my time there immensely. But also, just in terms of how they approached the market, and really were able to innovate, um, and were able to um, look at what problems the compliance industry was having. Very focused on data as well, and um, and sometimes the innovation and the evolution was by proxy of perhaps a perceived lack of investment and, and being focused because of that lack of investment. Uh, but actually when the investment then came, having that focus on you know, what the market wanted and be able to execute on, on that um, uh, w w w was, was helpful. You know? And I think that that's something that I've learned throughout my career then in terms of product development and kind of market development is you know, it's very cliche to say, you know, listen to your customers or listen to the sales team or listen to, uh, you know, keeping your eye out things. But the, that kind of validation around kind of data ideas and then being able to execute on them uh, thereafter, I think was a real strength of that business. And actually, by the time I left, it was something that other parts of Dow Jones were looking at the risk compliance business to say, uh, these guys, you know, know how to listen to the market and yeah. build products. So. But what, what, and what is the secret sauce there? How does one, um, you know, what lessons do you distill from that that you can then apply elsewhere? Well, I, th I mean, I think that um, there's 
um, two aspects of it. One is, um, uh, you know, obviously uh, being able to uh, capture uh, all of the, the, the myriad of ideas that are out there in relation to data points that would be interesting to a financial crime and compliance professional. And, um, and then the other aspect is what is going to be premium, uh, a premium piece of content that will garner uh, a, you know, revenue. And, and, and obviously the, the, the balance of that is tricky. And uh, you know, some of the subject matter experts that I've worked with in my career, who you know as well, you know, are, are people that are really passionate in this space uh, and know that financial crime typologies can pick out lots of different data points. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to monetize them. And I think in the in the case and the market that we work in with PEP and sanctions content, there's a perception that some of those core data sets are somewhat commoditized, right? Um, and there's probably an expectation from the customers of the various PEP and sanctions and adverse media providers that uh, the their provider should just provide them with anything new that's required. I think with what what also coincided at the time I was at Dow Jones and also continues to be uh, helpful in relation to the content sets we're building at Acuris is that the technology has improved significantly and it that you it definitely isn't the case that you have to just choose one provider anymore. You can you can look at you know the uh, the state-owned company data, the sanctions yeah. ownership research data from uh, Dow Jones. You can look at the, you know, terrorist financing data from WorldCheck. You can look at the negative news data from RDC. Um, you can look at the wealth-related data that Acuris has, and you can you can combine that in in any you know reg tech worth their salt. Yeah, they can take in that data and manipulate it and produce analytics on it. You're not you know, you, as a customer, you shouldn't feel forced to, that you have to force your data provider down routes that it really shouldn't even go into. You can buy the best of, of both worlds. Um, and equally from a software perspective that, you know, that's evolved where there's been more focus in the different workflows around compliance. And so fast forwarding from the bit that we were talking about before, um, which was your, your time at Dow Jones, Fast forwarding to like five, was it five or six years to eighteen months ago? Yeah. Took another calculated risk. Someone knocked on the door and suggested that you join this little company called Acuris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, and and look, you know, um, as I mentioned, I think you can tell from my kind of patter about Dow Jones that I, I absolutely had a fantastic time there and, and continue to again have great friends, which is. Um, uh, despite, you know, in, in, in some other form of a career, I may have stayed at, you know, Acuity for my whole career. And those that have done that have done amazingly well. Yeah. We've seen some great uh, friends that have continued. They've provided great career progression and opportunities. Yeah. Um, but I've, you know, I think um, the, uh, the, the, the decision kind of came at a time where I think, when I was being introspective about what I do well, um, I thought that um, the journey that I had taken with Dow Jones, taking it from uh, being a smaller um, portfolio and taking it to what now is, I think, one of the more significant revenue yeah. contributors to the overall professional information business. Uh, and then, you know, seeing the potential 
at Accurus, where they have, you know, with these brands that I described at the outset, uh, a real potential to kind of move up the curve in, in some specific sectors, in some specific verticals, to be disruptive in relation to a delivery framework around APIs and feeds, um, to, similar to, to Dow Jones, develop some premium content sets. And inevitably, the management team here really, you know, showing that they're ready to invest and to, to, to push on. Um, and, you know, I, and I think, you know, Dow Jones also is a great opportunity for them to look for someone that could take them to the next level and really take them on that different journey. And I think, you know, there are, there are I think, leaders that are, um, are, that are better at different parts of the journey. Yeah. I don't know if I would be the best leader in relation to take it from zero to, you know, the, those real true entrepreneurs that take that ultimate risk. I don't, uh, as you mentioned, I've taken some calculated risk. Yeah. I have the utmost respect for those that have taken that ultimate risk of starting from, thing, from absolute scratch and taking it forward. Um, uh, so I guess maybe I'm the, um, in, use baseball language, I'm the middle reliever. You know, you have the, the starter <laughs> yeah. that throws out the first pitch. Sometimes you have the closer that finishes the game. And I think, you know, I think I, I'm a good, uh, good at that middle level of really kind of galvanizing uh, uh, the team uh, that that's built up a good initial presence and taking them to that next level. So, uh, not to say that you know if we take this you know at Acuras uh, far beyond that I that I'd have to call it quits and move on to something else per se. But uh, but I think you know we we have a a great opportunity here, which I recognized at that time. Yeah, and. Uh, I guess you were uniquely well placed again to be able to do it because you had that uh, both that leadership um, and business experience as well as this product specific uh, knowledge that would probably be needed to to kind of piece to weave together the various pieces that Acuras had Acuras had at that time. Yeah, and I think you know I, th I think also you think about our CEO in terms of who what type of person he was looking for. Um, he. Uh, Acquis has a, had a, an amazing journey, the ex-merger market group, now known as Acquis, with the products that they have in relation to data for uh, financial professionals in relation to M&A, to uh, debt with DebtWire, uh, perfect information around reference information. Um, uh, but compliance is a, a new area. So um, I think he was looking for a subject matter expert. He was probably looking for someone that uh, had a good could, could get a good measure of the product people and be able yeah. to drive a, a really good product roadmap um, so there is always a temptation in that where you're really trying to drive growth in a, in a business to go out and just hire a sales guy um, and or to look for someone that has uh, a more rounded profile um, and so um, yeah I, you know I think I, I have dipped my toes into many of the different aspects of mm. of, of the various roles within within a, within a firm and so I think having a, being a good all-rounder to an extent was was a, was a good fit for them for that for that phase of the journey that they were going on very good one of the things I always found interesting about Acuris is you guys are one of the few companies who combine a financial crime offering with a uh, cybersecurity offering. Perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, there's, um, I mean, I think there's a unique crossover in the corporate market, in particular. Um, uh, the, you know, the the 
I guess in my view, there's two areas that um, you know we kind of sell into in the patent sanctions and adverse media space. One is the the anti-money laundering regulated companies, which used to be easy to say it's the banks, but it's more than the banks, it's financial services firms. It's all of those organizations that are under the anti-money laundering regulations. And that has increased yeah. from the third directive to the fourth directive to the third directive, et cetera. Like yeah. And then there is the corporate market, which um, is you know those global corporations that are looking at PEP sanctions and adverse media in relation to their suppliers, their third parties, their agents, and that that market is a really interesting market because it's uh, you know the amount of corporations in the world is huge, and um, you know my ex employer as well as ourselves and many others are capitalizing on that market by repositioning that content in a way that's uh, fungible for. Uh, to help comply with bribery and corruption legislation, also as part of a wider third-party risk portfolio. Now, that the buyer for that and the person that's driving policy in relation to that is usually the general counsel. The general counsel is also, from a third-party risk perspective, looking to protect the perimeter uh, from a legal perspective around data privacy and cybersecurity. And their counterpart in relation to that is usually the CISO of the organization. Yeah. Um, and so when you talk about data privacy risk and cybersecurity risk, there's a bridge um, uh, between cybersecurity and anti-corruption. Um, and I think equally when you talk about cybersecurity and the criminals that are associated with that, oftentimes there's also a convergence within a financial institution under the global head of financial crime. So oftentimes you do see uh, someone that is working on cybersecurity working in a financial crime team as well. So there are overlaps there. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's probably most poignant in that under the general counsel um, and one where um, you start to see that kind of be wrapped into the third party risk umbrella. Joel, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts um, as a leader within one of the players in this space on where the market is heading, what you see coming down the line that you're excited about, what do you think is maybe more noise than substance, um, where do you see the market heading? Well, it's, as always, a very interesting time, very uh, dynamic time in terms of the amount of investment that's going into uh, the compliance space. I think for those of us that have worked in the industry for a long time, we've seen uh, a lot of different uh, phenomenons occur. Uh, we've seen things that we thought were going to be somewhat revolutionary that haven't necessarily panned out. Um, and we've seen a lot of entrants into the market that um, have uh, oversimplified what, 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 uh, what can be achieved and oversimplified to an extent what technologies that have been successful potentially outside of the space can, can do. Um, the, for those of us that really believe in the value of human intelligence, at times we've found ourselves defending the importance of human intelligence to a bit of rhetoric and bluster around automating the entire industry, which is yeah. obviously I don't think anyone really kind of sees as, as, the, as the case. But often when you're pushing out a new extreme the bluster around that can help to you know galvanize a, a interest in whatever product or service you're you're selling. 
Um, it's absolutely clear that there's certain rudimentary tasks that uh, compliance teams do that can be automated and um, and but you know I guess what I always hesitate you know it's it's important to understand is that you know uh, whatever is is new is old to an extent uh, that's one thing and I think and also that you know things like machine learning have been around for quite some time yeah uh, they're not completely brand new um, and so I mean I think the the other aspect to that is you know looking at how PEP and sanctions and adverse media players have kind of positioned themselves over the years, we definitely see a sea change now. So, you know, if I go back 10 years and there was almost like this arms race of how many researchers do yeah. you have, uh, and there would be a lot of advertising of how many hundreds of researchers that you have. And we have more researchers than you, so we therefore we must be better. And I think what, what a good thing about the kind of age of AI and machine learning and the the investment that's kind of come into that is to say that, well, actually, the amount of researchers that are being added year on year by the major providers is not sustainable. And also, it's probably leading to a lot of waste because no matter how good you are in people management and workflow management around those people, there's, there's going to be a lot of inefficiencies in that regard. And so for those players that are kind of building the, that, that paradigm from the ground up, there's a real opportunity to kind of do it in a different way. Um, but you know, one thing that's not going to be satisfactory for uh, for any customer is a degradation in service, and the ultimate goal is still going to be to catch the bad guys. Yeah. And if the technology is not catching the bad guys, and the human intelligence is catching the bad guys, and there is a fine at stake or a reputation at stake, the banks are and the customers are always going to favor the the human intelligence piece ultimately. And so I think, as I've heard many in the industry say, look, we need to invest, we need to be innovative, we need to have incubators, and we need to fold these things in as they uh, become uh, more relevant and that, that they're actually working. And then in addition to that, I think you're seeing in the consultancy sector, actually something emerge where you're seeing a lot of the really good consultancies out there actually help regulators to understand it and help um, those that are producing these technologies uh, to get them adopted. And so I think that will continue uh, to be the case. Um, I also think the other paradigm that I think is interesting, you know, I commented on previously the difference between the financial crime data buyer yeah. and the corporate anti-corruption data buyer. Um, and those are actually two different, different, different um, uh, areas of need in relation to looking at financial crime risk and meeting anti-money laundering regulations and those that are actually looking to protect an overall reputation of an organization and mitigate uh, bribery and corruption risk um, and the definitions that were suitable uh, around what's important for banks uh, is very different to, to corporations and wider corporations that are actually in many ways concerned more about their supply chains, they're uh, looking at you know the, the, uh, the reputational risks around you know, third parties, and not necessarily, you know, the specific financial crime topics that would impact uh, a bank in terms of their, their, their money laundering um, uh, regimes, I guess, or, or, uh, or, or oversight bodies. Um, so um, I think that, you know, what's continued to happen is more specialism in relation to uh, uh, 
workflow solutions and data providers. Um, but you know, not just in our industry, but in all industries, you do have waves of generalism and specialism. Yeah. And so I do think we're on a wave of specialism at the moment, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't uh, uh, necessarily mean that we won't see, you know, all-encompassing providers and all-encompassing software providers and data providers emerge over time. I guess that these larger companies um, that is driven by acquisition by larger organizations. Is that what you're referring to there? So, so you have a lot of new, young, up-and-coming companies emerge, uh, and eventually they will get bought by, uh, you know, insert name of a very large technology company, for example. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, to drill down into that, if we're on a, a wave of specialism right now, then we must have had a wave of generalism before. And I think we did, because I think if you look back at some of the marketing from kind of two or three years ago around GRC yeah. and the idea that a single company could be your full service GRC provider. What did that really mean? You know, so what that was doing was, and you know, the amount of, of uh, interesting discussions that led for me in terms of explaining to investors or to management about what GRC meant yeah. and what where risk and compliance sat in relation to anti-money laundering and third-party risk as opposed to governance and audit and and and, and so I think what, what that what that means is that did GRC really happen? Did it really exist? Is there are firms that are still out there selling a GRC dream, uh, managing full service governance, risk, and compliance across the board for a global bank or organization, um, and then there are those that are selling very specialist systems for anti money laundering, very specialist systems for anti corruption very specialist systems for gifts and entertainment, for corporate security, very specialist systems for governance and audit and board management. Um, and, um, uh, and, and I think, you know, the, that, that wave of specialism is because of the, the, uh, uh, the, the in many ways, potentially because of, of those that were um, uh, sold the dream on GRC, which maybe didn't exist. So do you think that's driven by customers then dissatisfied with the options that are available? And what I mean by that is if you were to look at some of those large GRC um, providers, uh, financially, they have been quite successful, have they not? Um, I think to an extent uh, they have, but the, the what it's led to at times is a breakup of what they were doing in relation to certain aspects of their businesses, you've seen certain divestments. Um, at yeah. the end of the day, there's a, there's a certain amount of capex and opex that goes into an overall area, and you have to prioritize what you do. And I've always found, even as a data provider, there's always been this temptation to add software around the content to 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 grab market share in a specific workflow. And I've always been a great believer. And I've been a little bit hypocritical on this uh, at times because obviously at, at Dow Jones we went off and bought a couple of um, software, one before I left and one that happened right after I left in relation to um, anti-corruption third-party yeah. risk software. Uh, but there is such a myriad of different workflows out there, some of which I've just mentioned, that to go out and acquire them all um, well, may not be possible. Uh, I think also once you do acquire one in a specific space, let's say if you go out and buy a payment screening um, uh, filter and application, then then you're all in in that space. You're like you have big expectations from that specific customer base. 
Um, so, and you've got to fulfill that. And so it, it, it may then distract you from other areas of GRC that you're, you're invested in. Um, so yeah, I can't comment on specific cases. There's definitely been organizations that have been successful in building the building blocks of a wider GRC solution. And then there are others that have, have fallen off. But I do generally feel that from a marketing and kind of overall marketing bluster, and don't mean that a negative connotation per se, but there's a lot of bluster around AI machine learning right now. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of bluster two years ago, about two, not even probably, it was probably five years ago, wasn't it? Around GRC. Yeah. And I get you know, one aspect of that was FATCA, right? There was a huge amount of activity yeah. around FATCA yeah. um, five years ago. I don't hear anyone talking about FATCA right now. It's still an issue, but it's yeah. not something that, that's garnering much press. Yeah, you can only really know the winners in hindsight. <clears throat> yeah. Um, okay. If you could go back in time and offer one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? I would say don't worry as much about education and more about practical experience. That would probably be my, my initial reaction because um, I, I was very focused on going to university, getting a master's, which I eventually did. And although the education in that path helped me in terms of how I think and how I yeah. understand things and definitely socially it was, it was great. Um, when I look at my four sons right now in terms of their development, not just because I'm worried about paying for university for all four of them, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I, you know, I think practical experience is also extremely valuable and, uh, and important. And if they were to tell me, Dad, I don't want to go into go to university, I want to do something more practical, I'd be, be all for it. Um, so. That would probably be my answer. Thank you very much, Joe Lang. Great to see you. Great to see you. Let's go for a beer. <laughs> Done. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Reg Tech Legends podcast. I hope you enjoyed sitting down with Joel Lang as much as I did. Um, certainly very grateful to Joel for sparing the time to share his story with us. Um, in the next episode of the Reg Tech Legends podcast, we're going to be sitting down with none other than Charlie Dellingpole founder of Student Rooms, co-founder of Market Invoice, and most recently founder of none other than Comply Advantage. Uh, and he's going to share his story with us. So make sure you don't miss it and see you next time. Take care.